Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to, to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now, we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. So when you talk about Galatia, there are really three regions that make up Galatia. And in fact, some of you have probably seen in the back of your Bible these charts. And I reference these quite often because when I was a kid, I, I think I've said that I would rub my little tiny finger through all of those lines. The first journey and the second journey and the third journey and so forth and the journey to Rome. If anybody else did that, it really does make me feel really good. But I did that all the time, and it it created an interest, uh, stirred an interest within me to not only learn more about the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts, but also about how quickly and how far-reaching the gospel was was reaching this this region. And so uh, when we begin to look in the back, sometimes you'll see these larger regions in Asia, Asia Minor, where the gospel is taken, and there is a center section there Uh, And it's in my Bible anyway, so I've given you kind of a copy of what it looks like in one of the Bibles I have. Galatia is this region. Now, you'll notice that there's a lighter color green at the bottom and a lighter color green at the top. And in the middle, there's kind of a dark green. Now, let me point out, if you remember Acts 2, most of the books we're going to go through in the New Testament, the church is either planted by immediately after the the conversions on Pentecost or uh, just soon after that. And some of these churches that Paul's writing to had actual believers that became New Testament Christians on Pentecost. And so we see the area here of Cilicia, Cappadocia, uh, Lycia, Pamphylia, uh, Bithynia, Pontus. These are cities and regions in this little area where after Pentecost, those New Testament Christians would have went back and helped to establish congregations of the Lord's people. And that, to me... I've, I never heard that emphasized when I was growing up. I, I, don't, I don't ever remember hearing that emphasized until I got to college, that the church really spread after Pentecost faster and further than we ever imagined. You say, well, what can 3,000 people do? Well, as we look at the story tonight, it obviously was strong enough to establish enough congregations that Paul feels a, a, comp, a compulsion to write to these people. And so inside of this region, there are basically three groups 
of people, and you can see there on the chart from one end to the other, there is the Galatian people as an ethnic group uh, cover this area. The Gauls setter, settle in the north part uh, up here, up in the Antolia. It's not written on there, though, but it's Antolia up to the north part of that, that map. And they're infamous with the, they were the ones who raided Italy. They're the ones that invaded Rome. And there's a, a really neat story about that. They were a, a more cultural society, culturally primitive society, I should say. Um, they had a lot of really neat things in their history, which I, I won't get into all that. I, I'm going to chase rabbits. But they were more heavily influenced by Greek culture. So they were very, uh, very much Hellenized in that area. And then you've got the southern part, way down here, uh, Laconia or Lasonia, depending on how you, how you translate it, down here in the lower part, where you've got Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. Do those sound, cities sound familiar? Uh, and Antioch of Pisidia, does that sound familiar? Those are churches in Acts that are established either by Paul's missions or the church was established from those on Pentecost. So these, while it looks like just a map and a couple of names and some pictures, there are many, many New Testament Christians in this region when Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, and I think that needs to be uh, strongly emphasized. In fact, Lystra and Derby are probably one of the two largest of the congregations. I did a, a Bible study many years ago on all of the churches in the New Testament. And some of the material that I'm sharing with you comes from that series because I just found it interesting. There was a little book, and I can't remember whether it was Sweet Publishing. Somebody published this little Bible, Bible study book of churches in the New Testament. And some of these little cities only had like four or five sentences. And I thought, surely there's more to know. So if for my benefit only, I studied each of these cities. I learned a little bit more about the culture and just found it fascinating. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, I can give you some resources. But it is really neat. Lystra and Derby are fairly large cities and had very strong congregations. But you've got Antioch of Pisidia over here, which is on the map to the right side. You see that Pisidian Antioch? This congregation was heavily influenced by the early apostles, by Paul and those in ministry, uh, whether they were preaching, teaching, or just traveling missionaries. And a lot of great stuff happened uh, in this area. I might say also the southern part was heavily influenced by the Greco-Roman culture. So there was more Roman influences, uh, very quick to adapt to Latin language and uh, Roman culture, whereas the northern was more Grecian. So it's not that they didn't conquer it, but Rome kind of left them to their own free will. And this is something else, too. Rome did early on, and they learned this from some of the Greeks, is that they had such an influence there presently with the Greek culture that they didn't want to disrupt it. So they let them keep their language. They let them keep some of their cultural things. You see that in Jerusalem, for instance. The Jews were allowed to keep the temple. They were allowed to keep worshiping. They were allowed to keep sounding the trumpets and doing all the things that they did. Uh, they were allowed to keep all of their feast days. So the Romans were trying to pray, pl play more of a political role since most of the world was conquered already by the Greeks. They kind of stepped in and said, hey, we're new in charge. And uh, they were very strong, but the fact was they let certain cultures keep their traditions. And they would just set up another temple for their emperor in that city or to their gods. But they pretty much left most of them alone. So, which really has a very interesting part of how the New Testament church was established because they were able to go in under the Pax Romana and establish new churches everywhere. Uh, this city in Antioch, Pisidia was not a primitive culture. It was a Roman colony. It was well fortified. It was uh, full of, uh, we would say, Roman military, retired Roman military. There are a few cities like that in the New Testament church. So they were very well off. And so they had a lot of money. Some of that money in the church obviously used to spread the gospel. 
Um, but it was a strong region, very strong region. Had a lot of military posts. Uh, I believe it is at Antioch Pisidia that they had such a large military operation that if they were ch they decided to invade anywhere to the further no no north, east, or west, that they would meet here and then send their troops out. So it's kind of like a, we would say a, an area where there's a large fort, and so it's fortified anyway. All right, so now you know that. Um, a lot of schools of thought on why Paul, Paul writes to these churches uh, and I'm not going to get into tonight the Northern Galatian theory and the Southern Galatian theory. I think both of them have some pretty good merit, but I won't, I won't get too deep into that. But I'll just say there's two schools of thought. One is that it's more of a generic letter to written to all. And the other is it's written only specifically to one section or to one specific city, like we would say Lystra and Derby, for instance. But the book uh, centers around the influence of Paul in these cities, in this particular region. Now, let me tell you a little bit of the, the, the history of the city itself. It's a little vague, but they were very rich. Uh, this is a, 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 sea, a, a region where it had a lot of, uh, I said, a lot of affluence. Um, we, they, we know that they uh, had popular worship centers to Cybele, uh the goddess, the mother goddess. Uh, it's also uh, one who was known for uh, illicit sexual behavior which is a very strong influence that impacted even those in the church. And knowing that is important because you begin to see, most of us have studied, and over here again, referencing the fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about through all this year. We do spend a lot of time talking about, how many of you heard sermons and classes on the fruit of the Spirit? Yeah, definitely. Did you know there's a list that appears before that in Galatians 5? It's called the works of the flesh. When's the last time you heard a sermon series on the works of the flesh? We talk about the fruit of the Spirit, but we don't talk about the works of the flesh. And it is important to see that Paul's saying, I see what's going on in this region. And a lot of it was illicit sexual behavior, um, homosexuality, transgenderism, things like that, that we wouldn't know anything about, right? <laughs> this is a letter that is just as applicable today as it was in the day it was written. And it's written to a region where most of those that are in positions of authority participated in all kinds of activities that were embarrassing. I mean embarrassing. In fact, it would make most pagans blush in some of these areas. But the reason why is because there's so much money there. And oftentimes when you see cities who have built up a lot of finances and have built large buildings and amassed large fortune, it, they will dwindle to a very low moral place, uh, a low moral compass, we might say. So uh, Roman religions are flourishing here, and, uh, and so Christianity kind of comes in offering a, a new perspective as to the way to look at eternal things, not just to God himself, but teaching about heaven and angels. And so uh, Paul, Paul will talk about that in Galatians, won't he, about angels and hearing messages from angels. Um, they practiced angel worship in Galatia. The church in Antioch of Pisidia started... Uh, or at least we find its first reference uh, around Acts 16 through 18. And Paul and Barnabas have reached the mainland of Cyprus. They, they go first to Perga, which you may have seen there on the map, uh, on the coast. They travel straight north about 100 miles to Antioch of Pisidia. And when they stay there, uh, it is distinguished, by the way, from its name. You ever get confused with all the Antiochs? I know I do. Um, it's the same thing when you're seeing Caesarea. You know, which, which Caesarea is it? Because everything was named after Caesar, Caesarea. So um, the way that the New Testament writers do it, especially Luke, is to say Antioch of Pisidia or Pisidian Antioch. 
And this is the region where Paul found a lot of financial support for his missions. Um, it was founded by Seleucus uh, the first uh, in the third century. He built this large fort- fortress around it. And later on, the Romans took control in 188. They built an imperial colony here, and that's why there were so many, so many people in such a large base for finances. The founder of the city, though, uh, Seleucus, was actually a Jew. And that's also important in looking at the history of, the, of this region. Uh, Antioch City was founded, this area was founded, Seleucus was the, the founder of a lot of these, um, or at least of this particular city. They had good public roads, they had good water, they had uh, all kinds of really neat things. So then the church begins in Antioch. The, the next thing we see is the church begins in Iconium. Uh, there are missionaries in Acts 13 that are forced out. And Acts 14 says that when they left uh, that region, they went immediately to Iconium. That's about 60 miles southwest of Antioch. Uh, So they go further south, going back towards the seashore. And then they begin to uh, plant other congregations where there's large water sources and large cities where they have marketplaces. And I I emphasize again the reason why the church grew in large uh, at those areas where there were marketplaces because most of the early preachers were a lot like Paul in that they were bivocational. Paul had his best work in regions where he could support himself by putting up tents and building tents. That's how he met uh, um, several of his uh, companions, we'll say, in ministry. And so they would always go to these areas where there were large places to shop and to, uh, you could get away with a lot in the marketplace. In fact, they were usually worried about people stealing. They weren't worried about what you were teaching. When Paul preaches in Acts 17, remember he's preaching to a Gentile audience that is confused as to who their God is, the Jewish God, or we say the, the God of the New Testament, our God, the one true God. And so he, he begins to teach in, uh, at the Areopagus or Areopagus, he begins to teach about how all these other gods are not only lesser, but really uh, in comparison, nothing like the one true God. And he even uses their philosophy against them to say uh, some things like he says to Titus as well, to the Cretans. You know, even your gods, even your, even your poets tell you that there's a God that created all things. And Luke records only a handful of the sermons, but I'm going to tell you that the one in Acts 17 may be one of his greatest messages ever preached. But they leave from Lystra, they go to Derby, and the church begins there very quickly. This is the last city that Paul and Barnabas visited in heading, heading towards North Galatia before they retract and start heading back home. So if you're following it with your finger on the map, it starts to go back south. So they've reached this high at this time that they're going to go. Paul will continue to reach this region, but he... What's that? That's the end of the first... Yes, that's the end of the first journey. For whatever reason, that's where they choose to stop and head home. And it could be that it's because of lack of finances. It also could be seasonal. And this is something that we, we don't emphasize is that Paul didn't just leave when there was trouble. There are a lot of cities that he stayed when there was trouble. So if they left this region, it may be because it was about to get to wintertime and it was going to get colder. And so like a lot of our friends up north, they become snowbirds in the wintertime. So that's possible that he was moving back that way. It could be financial. It could be that he knows he's got other things that need to be done. But for whatever reason, that's as far as they go on the first trip. Uh, and then just to know a little bit about those other places, those other congregations, they may have established a church in Perga as they hurry back to Antioch of Syria. Uh, they're, they're checking back in with some of their, um, with the, we say the apostles, the church leaders. 
uh, before they start that second missionary journey. We'll talk more about that in the future, too. So there's a lot of great things that happen uh, in this region, and Paul's writing is going to help bless the church uh, here in this, in this particular city. So when we look at the book itself, obviously Paul wrote it. Uh, we believe it could have been written somewhere around 49 AD from Antioch in Syria. Uh, it could have been written as late as 56 AD from Ephesus, but that's kind of a ballpark. We're within about a six or seven year region as to when this book was written. Uh, we know that it is about justification by faith in Christ. There is a, a, a brief, in, you know, Paul can't write anything about talking about baptisms. So there's a brief section here where he talks about, doesn't matter what background you're from, male or female, Gentile, Greek, that we're all one in Christ. And, uh, and there are some key verses which we'll get to. Uh, another thing, too, about some of the dilemmas that they fo faced, one was uh, when Paul came to this region, sometimes the problems followed him because of Jewish influence. So the Jews hated Paul because he basically turned against them. It's like he switched teams, went to the enemy. And Jews did everything they could to discredit his name. So when Paul entered a region to teach and preach, the Jews would send messages ahead to say, hey, there's this guy... He used to be called Saul of Tarsus. Now they call him Paul. He's preaching nonsense. Just leave him alone. And they would send letters and writings, I'm sure, by word of mouth. And so when he gets there, he has automatic trouble. Um, most of these cities didn't want any trouble. They were in Galatian, or they were in uh, Gentile territory anyway. They had to deal with a lot of secular stuff. And so Paul has to kind of assert himself to, to say, I am not only an apostle, but I have such authority, B, I can rebuke even an apostle who walked with Jesus. And that, that comes to, to fruition here in the book of Galatians. Uh, I want you to notice here, as he, as he starts the book, the tone that Paul says. And I'm going to try to try to emphasize with you as we read it. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God, God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of the gospel to a different gospel, which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For I do now persuade, do, do now persuade men or God... Or do I seek to please men? For I still please men. If I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Uh, when there is something that is said repeatedly, it is meant to be for emphasis. They didn't use the punctuation that we use today. I always laugh on Facebook and Instagram. There's some people that are a little heavy-handed with their exclamation points. You know, it's like. Uh, okay, you want to put it in all caps and put six points on the end? I don't need that. One's good for me. And some people will really emphasize with the question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. You'd be like the Spanish uh, culture, and they have one at the beginning and the end. So you really know before you start it, there's going to be a question. 
But in, in this particular way of writing, they didn't have those ways to produce emphasis. So if you wanted to make a point, you did it by repeating it. And so Paul starts his letter. Usually he'll give his brief introduction, and then he'll highlight a few key people that he's with or people that he wants to address. And he, he takes at least half the chapter basically massaging to, to get to a point where he's, he's he, and maybe a little bit of praise, a little bit of positivity, a little encouragement, a little edification, and then he brings down the hammer. But we're, we're six verses in, and he, he's thrown down the gauntlet. He's really upset with the brethren here. In fact, there was a, a book that was written, a, a devotional book that I've got in my office, or I think it was a Bible class book. It says, Oh, Stupid Galatians. And if you're gonna if you're gonna translate it, that's basically the foolish is too too uh, um, you know too vanilla of a term. If you want to really oh stupid foolish idiotic Galatians, and Paul will speak that way to this church because they could handle it. Now you ever have two or three kids and you're you have to talk to each of them about something and you can some of them you could yell at them all day long. You know I had one. You could spank him, you could put him in a corner, you could whatever. Nothing was going to change his mind. But I had other, another one that if I just said it loudly, he was in tears and it was over. So sometimes your children can be disciplined differently. Paul writes to churches differently. And this is a harsh letter from page one. Did you notice the emphasis on let him be accursed? Uh, the idea of cursing someone, rebuking someone, Paul knows they may see it as just a simple diversion from the truth. Paul sees it as something that is going to be much more sinister. Now, this is an important step for us as the New Testament church today. And this happens sometimes in new churches that are planted, but it can happen also for churches that have been established for many years. Someone comes in, and they begin to teach in a very persuasive way a topic or a theme. I call them hobby horses, where everybody has their hobby horse, their little topic that they just... I asked Matt Wallen today, he's coming to speak at Titus Camp. I said, what's your hobby horse? I did that to Colin today too, didn't I, on the phone. What's your hobby horse? What would you like to talk about? And so one of the things that uh, in dealing with this, that he, he obviously is going to be a problem, is there were these new guys coming in and they were teaching a strange form of doctrine uh, it could be something subtle, but it usually has a more sinister twist. And it is to assert themselves, Paul dealt with this in Corinth, as more important, their traditions and opinions are more valuable than those that they had heard previously. Uh, I have often taken the position that if it has been taught for a long time, it's probably been taught for a reason. There are guys a whole lot smarter than me that have filled the pulpit where I stand. And there are many Christians who helped teach me and, and share the gospel with me that knew what they were doing. So I will almost always err on the side of tradition because I know that it's there for a reason. Now, do I study it? Yes. Do I challenge it? Sometimes. But I know that it is there for a reason. So Paul's saying, even if you have somebody like an angel come to you and say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And they worshiped angels in Galatia. Uh, so he says, even if an angel comes to you, do not believe their doctrine. And we do have a tendency to like praise, um, but we can let that become idolatrous when we begin to see that person as they, they and I've had people tell me before, when they've, and this is where it's hard as a preacher because you want people to listen to you. 
and they'll call and they'll say, what do we believe about such and such? And I have to take a seat because at first I want to say, well, we believe, but I have to say, I could tell you what I believe, but let me give you a few Bible verses. I've had people call me in the middle of a barbecue and say, I got somebody over here. He's really challenging us on this. What do we believe on this? What Bible verses should I use? And I, I appreciate the fact that they're, they're calling on me for help, but I, I'm not going to answer for you on Judgment Day. So you, you have to know what you believe. And um, studying the Bible is the only way to be able to make that happen. You need to read it. You need to study it. And even though we have great preachers and teachers, even within our fellowship, even in this church, I believe, sometimes something may be misunderstood that is said. Something may be accidentally misstated. I've had people come to me and say there's a verse wrong on the PowerPoint and hesitant whether or not I'm going to take offense to that. Are you kidding? Of course you should tell me because if it's going to go on the internet, somebody else reads it, they're going, to, they're going to misunderstand what I was trying to say. And sometimes we stumble and we say something and we didn't mean to have it come out like that way. So it's good to, to say, hey, look, did you meet, am I understanding you to say such and such? And it's not that we have a contentious environment, but we do have to have the fortitude to defend what we teach. And if you have someone who says, oh, I don't want to talk about that right now, or let's not deal with that right now, or we'll talk about that later, or uh, th usually is a sign that they can't defend it themselves. So Paul's dealing with this on a, on a cultural level, on a c church community level. There was things being taught he knew was wrong. He thought that they knew it was wrong. And so he has to th just throw it down. He says, if you remember what we taught there, you remember what Barnabas and I brought you the gospel, you remember what you were taught, and, and I told you this would happen. If anyone teaches anything other than what we said, you need to cast him out of the church. He needs to be accursed. Uh, and so that's hard for us. We don't want to stir any trouble. Now, there are some people, that's all they like to do, is stir trouble. But we don't want to, usually we don't want to stir any trouble. We don't want to don't make it difficult for somebody. But I'm telling you, if I stand in this pulpit, and I'm saying this as, as, as the minister of this church, the pulpit minister, if I teach something that is error, I need to be not only rebuked, but I need to be tossed out. Because if I begin to teach something that is false, not only is it a risk to my soul, but to those who hear it. And that's a tough line to follow, but we've got to preach and teach the truth. Ultimately, the church itself, the shepherds of the church, the elders of the church, are held accountable to what is taught. And so the best way to do that is to just teach everything you can from Scripture. Just and that's when I try to preach expository preaching. I know Billy loves to preach expository preaching too. We just open up the chapter and verse and we start reading. And if you don't bring your Bible, you're going to be lost. You've got to bring that Bible to class and to worship. And, that, and Paul loves them. He's not trying to be critical. But he's just saying, look, I don't care what they're saying. I don't care how good they look and how fancy they talk. They're teaching something false. Don't support ministries or teaching or even congregations that teach consistently false doctrine you you just you can't do that so he says let him be accursed and he says i i'm, I'm not trying to persuade people let god does that he, he he convicts and pricks the heart and then he says in verse 11 but i made known to you brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man it's not human it's not something i invented or came up with verse 12 for i neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul's going to hang his hat every time. I was called by Jesus. If you heard Paul preach, 
You've read Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. Every time Paul had an audience, he told his conversion story. And he did that for two reasons. One, to connect with people, to talk about how he became a New Testament Christian. And the second was to say that Jesus himself called him as an apostle. So he met the qualifications of what is spoken in Acts chapter 1. No, he didn't walk with Jesus through every step, but he was personally called by Christ on the road to Damascus. And he has to identify that there is a reason why I'm preaching to you. I don't know who that guy is who came and said whatever, but I am an apostle of Jesus. And I have been called by Christ, and he gave me direct revelation. Um, one thing, too, while I'm on a, a little a little chase a little rabbit. Some people say today that they receive supernatural knowledge. And they will say that God directly speaks to them. And I've had people tell me that themselves. I say, well, God told me, or God is moving me in this direction. God is showing me. Here's the point. Even if an angel comes to you, even if a very persuasive preacher who looks the part, plays the part, talks the part, teaches anything contrary to the revealed word of God, they are false. So when people say, Jesus told me to do this, or God told me to do this, I'm always very leery of that. I ask people, well, if you heard God's voice, what does his voice sound like? Does it sound like the voice of God? Does it sound like a man? Does it sound like a woman? Does he have a Middle Eastern accent? You know, I'm, just, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just saying that at some point, uh, there's a reason why people believe and hear things. And most of the time, it's because it's what we want. We want to experience something. And people, I knew a, a gentleman one time, he had lost a son in a very tragic accident. And he wasn't sure whether he, he was, he was a New Testament Christian early in life, but had strayed from the faith. And he would pray and pray and pray from his back porch that a miracle would happen, a certain uh, tree, that a, a, a bird would light in this tree. And he prayed and prayed days after days after days, and no bird would light in the tree. And finally, one day, a bird landed in that dead tree, and then another bird came and landed in that dead tree. And he couldn't tell me, but I know my son went to heaven. Now, I don't know whether his son was in heaven or not, but he was looking and praying for a miracle, and I'm telling you, when we look and we pray for something, sometimes Satan will let us have it. It's not always God's revelation. It is often something that we believe. I can believe things. I, I know that there are times that we may have injuries. You ever have an injury before? You're outside in the yard and you're working, and all of a sudden you've got this gash down your leg or your arm, and you don't even, you're bleeding. This happens to me all the time. Bleeding, don't even know it's there. And somebody goes, what would you do there? And I go, oh, no, but it hurts. You know, I didn't even know for the last two hours. And so sometimes we... When we're in the middle of an experience, we, we convince ourselves that something's being said, something's being done, and so our own mind can deceive us. That's why God has printed his holy word, because your eyes may deceive you, your ears may deceive you, but when you read it on the printed page, and this is why it's also very dangerous that we're moving to a lot of technological parts of our society where everything's in in, in print, not in print, but on the internet, like all of our money and all of our, all of our books, it's easy to take text out and move and shift things. That's why I advocate strongly you have a printed copy of the Word of God so that you can read and study, mark, highlight, take note. And that's what Paul was hoping that this church would understand. A friend that had a man come to his office, knocked on the door and came in his office, and he said, God spoke to me as I was walking in front of this church. And he wanted me to come and give you a message. And he said, well, you know, I was just sitting here. He has his Bible open. And I was just sitting here spending time in devotion. And I was reading here in the Word of God. And the Word of God teaches me and tells me that what you're about to tell me is false. 
And he goes, really? He said, yeah, yeah, I know that God, God, God spoke to you, but God is speaking to me, telling me from his word that whatever you're about to say is not from him. And he was very humbled by that, turned around left. <laughs> I don't know whatever happened to the man, but anyways, and, and you want to be sincere. Look, I'm not saying that we're harsh and critical of people, but um, there, comes a, there comes a time when we have to remind people that the most valuable thing, the most important thing any Christian can do is read the Word of God every day, every day. Hazel gave me a, a, one of the neatest little presents I've had in a long, long time. I brought it home and I gave it to, showed it to Misty, the Bible. Remember? Yeah. She gave me a Bible uh, just this week. And uh, I, I, I love to get Bibles to read the people who have actually read it and studied it and put notes in it. And um, this is a used Bible. Very, It's a treasure now to us. And so whenever people read the Word, and they read it every single day, Hazel says she reads the New Testament every month, a different translation. That is awesome. That is awesome. So what we, could, we could effectively study more, uh, and, and you'd be amazed at how much you're, you're going to learn. You're going to, to continue to build up knowledge if you read it and reread it and read it and reread it. And it's, it gives, it's like literally God breathing life into you every time. Because his word brings life. It's the spoken word in Genesis where he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And God literally breathes into us. This is his word, and it's breathing. You can feel his breath. I mean, you're reading it. That's why I always try to tell kids to read a verse. This sounds silly, but it does work. When you read a verse, imagine literally picking it up off the page and putting it in your mind. Take it and put it here. Read it, take it, and put it here. Read it, take it, put it here. I want to remember this verse. Write it and put it above your door, Deuteronomy teaches. Put it on the wall. Put it in your car. Put verses everywhere to remind you that God's Word guides you. Um, I've got to move through this real quick. got about five minutes. So, chapter 2, Paul deals with an issue that obviously was a problem. Um, it must have been an issue previously, although he didn't see it. Is that when Peter comes to visit this congregation, uh, Peter, being a Jew allowed himself to dismiss himself. They had, this church was used to Gentile people, so when they had, say, I'll put it on our language, it's like a fellowship meal. When they get together for fellowship, uh, in most of the Jewish churches, even though they believed everybody was faithful Christians, Jews and Gentiles did not associate with each other. As much as you love them, you probably wouldn't go to their house, you probably wouldn't sit at, with them at a table. It's very tough for the first few years after the church was established. But this is a region that everybody got along fine. Jews and Gentiles were fine. But when Peter gets there, he realizes that there are Gentiles. He's fellowshipping with them, no problem, until some Jews show up, and then he withdraws himself and goes and sets with the Jewish brethren because he is by his, not just by his culture, but by his race, a Jew. And so this would be like preaching for a congregation that is uh, predominantly another minority and, and you begin to preach and everything's going great. And the moment somebody comes that, that looks more like you or talks more like you, you disassociate yourself with those individuals you've been preaching for, working for all that time, and come over here and associate only with this limited small group of people. And it was devastating to the brethren because they thought they were included. They're having a, a meal with Peter, and now Peter withdraws. It said, when Peter came to Antioch, verse 11, I withstood him to his face. Now, that... Does that tell you the kind of conflict he might have had with Barnabas in Acts 15 and 16? No, we, we, he said, I withstood him to his face. So this is a, these are two brothers. It says, 
For before a certain man came from James, he would eat with Gentiles. When they came, he withdrew and separated himself. It says, fearing those who are of the circumcision. He was afraid to keep eating with the Gentiles because he wanted to associate himself with Jews. So this is a tough, a tough one. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory that Paul feels prejudice is wrong. Racism is never right. And so he's, he shows by his teaching, by his example, Jews and Gentiles were equal. Chapter 3 sounds a whole lot like Romans. Uh, Paul will go through and use some of the phrases... And, and, and similarly, too, to the book of James, he uses a lot of phrases about our faith and justified by faith, but also the fact that, that at years past they had focused only on the law. The law was important. law was necessary. But now he speaks about this necessity of grace and knowing the grace of God, so much so that he actually compares in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, and a little bit more in a few other places, that he says there's this there's the difference between Jews and Gentiles one was a child of promise and the other was a child of blessing and he compares the Jews to Ishmael and he compares the Gentiles and those that are not of the seed to those of Isaac now that would really get some Jews stirred up there's a couple other things things he says in here I'm not going to read them but there's one phrase he uses that is extremely harsh but he's really sticking it to the Jews to say, you need to stop acting like this. Don't do this. Uh, chapter 4, he talks about some of the fears that he had for the church, some of the problems that they were facing. So he goes through some of that, talking about what it means to be blessed, what it means to be, and that's chapter 4. Chapter 5 is where he gets into the works of the flesh and the lust of the flesh, uh, uh, basically the, the things that we pursue for our benefit of our physical body our flesh, and then the spiritual things, things that are inward, uh, the things that we need to bear in our life. And I did a video many years ago, I think it's still on my YouTube page, where I took a bunch of pictures of rotten meat and put the works of the flesh, and then nice pretty pieces of fruit for the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, which one would you prefer? I'm still going to eat my bacon and my, my steak, though I'm telling you. But the fact is, there are some things that fleshly, physical, are, are detrimental to both your physical body and to your spiritual health. He also talks about how not to use your liberty against one another, which sounds a lot like Romans, thir Romans 13. Uh, so in chapter, six, or chapter 5 or 16, he says, Walk in the Spirit that you shall fulfill the lust, shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So this is what he identifies in Ephesians chapter 6, that there is this constant warfare between flesh and spirit. And, and this really goes back to something Jesus said in the garden. Do you remember what he said in the garden? He told them to stay awake and to watch and pray because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. The flesh almost always gets what it wants. It almost always gets what it wants. And maybe, I don't know if you've had this experience, but as a child there were times that I... I wanted to stay up late. I wanted to stay up uh, when I was little. I wanted to see the ball drop. Why? I don't know. Maybe I just really loved to watch Dick Clark, you know. But he, remember he did the ball drop all the time? Uh, something about just the excitement of New York City and the ball drop. Then you're like, yay! Oh, we have one more hour? No! I don't want to go to bed! And mom and dad go, hit the hay, you know. And I'd stay in there and lay, and I was like, I want to wait. Midnight, I want to jump up and run the hallways, and it's midnight! Happy New Year! And I'm out. 
because the flesh is weak. I'm going to get out there in the yard, and I'm going to do yard work all day. And in two hours, I'm looking for the leave. Why? The flesh is weak. So his advocate that he gives is here. You've got to fill yourself with as much spiritual things to overcome the flesh. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against those things. These are things both Jews and Gentiles alike can accept, can agree on, and they're natural fruit of the Spirit. John 15 comes to mind, 1 through 8, about how uh, Jesus talks about the true vine being connected to the vine. So we want to bear fruit, right? And then chapter 6, just real quick, the first two verses are really a great highlight. When he says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, which he's already addressed with Peter, he's already addressed with the false teachers in chapter 1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, you need to actively pursue people that are doing things that are in sin. You don't, you don't flirt with it. You don't overlook it or wink at it. If someone is caught up in sin, you go in a spiritual way, full of the fruit of the Spirit, and deal with that fleshly sin very quickly. And then uh, another thing, too, is you keep reading. I love 9 and 10. It says, uh, let's not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So all of the fruit that you're bearing, all the things that you're doing to bless others, there will be a harvest coming. You may not see it, but if you don't lose heart, the harvest is plentiful. The problem is, as Jesus said, the laborers are few. So be full of the Holy Spirit, go out and do the things that are right, and there will be some blessing. In, in, in. And then in verse 10, if we have an opportunity to do good to all, especially do good to those who are the household of faith. And that's it's essential in the church. Good to help people and be benevolent. I have a lot of people that I like to help and organizations I like to help. There are probably some people who mail you little mail outs and send in some cash and get some free, you know, uh, labels, you know, on your thing. And that's all great and good. There's some great works. But there's none greater than supporting the work of the Lord's church. And uh, just, a little, just a little side note, if we give more to a secular organization or if we give more to individuals than we give to the Lord's church, we really need to reevaluate the way we give. Because the Lord's work is, as he says here in verse 10, it is, you've got to, it's good to be good to all people. It's good to help all people, but especially to the household of faith. And so look around for Christians that are in need. Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Wrap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldswrap.com. Hope you have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.